Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, June Grovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping early this week on Tuesday, July 31st at 1030 because I'm going out of town. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Good morning. And Rebecca Adams of CQ. Thanks for having me. Also this week, we have our Bill of the Month feature with KHN's Emery Hudeman talking about a very expensive surgery and a very persistent patient. And one more shout out for questions for our end of summer special. What did you always want to know about health policy but never got around to asking? Here's your chance. You can tweet your questions to me or drop us an email. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. But first, the news. As we head into August and the midterm election politics heat up, I wanted to take some time and talk about where we are politically vis-a-vis health care. Last year at this time, if you remember, and I know you all remember, Congress was just failing to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Now we're into political season for real, and it's the Democrats putting health care front and center. What is their strategy? Alice, you're you're up on the hill every day. Uh, not as much with uh, with the immigration crisis going on. I've been very focused on that, but uh, some some movement is happening up on the hill. But a lot of it is looking ahead to the November midterms, and uh, Democrats are lining up a bunch of bills and forming political caucuses in the anticipation of taking back at least the House. Uh, the Senate is much more of an uphill climb for Democrats. Um, not impossible, but a lot less likely than the House. But if uh, if there is a change in the control of the House, they want to have bills and political coalitions ready to go on the health care front. There's some divide between those who just want to focus on undoing uh, the damage to the Affordable Care Act that the Trump administration has caused by repealing the individual mandate and cutting the enrollment period and all the things we've talked about so much, and those who want to go full single payer or Medicare for all or whatever we want to call it. And we'll get into those yes. details. But but Rebecca, this is I mean, Democrats have been on the defense on health care since the Affordable Care Act passed. This year, they're on the offense. Well, it's kind of amazing, actually. And Julie, you know this. Um, Democrats have been on the defense on, on health care for years. I mean, going back to 93, 94, that was one of the main reasons why they did so poorly in the 94 elections, along with gun control and a n- number of other things, including and, the, the tax increase. But that, yeah, that was the health care bill that didn't pass. They didn't pass. That's right. And so in 2010, we saw a repeat history rhymes. So we saw Democrats have a a terrible showing that year. And so um, this is really interesting to see them feeling emboldened. Um, You all have talked about the Medicare for All bill in previous podcasts. And we will talk about it more today. (laughs) Okay, very good. Um, It's just incredible what we're seeing on the campaign trail. Now, not every Democratic candidate out there is going to be touting this. Um, CQ, the CQ roll call that I work for, um, we interview every congressional candidate that has a chance. And there are people like Lizzie Fletcher in Houston who's going up against John Culberson. She's not touching the Medicare for All debate. She's not going 
going there. Um, but there are people that were sort of interesting and surprising, like um, Amy McGrath, the Marine Lieutenant Colonel in um, Kentucky, who's going up against Andy Barr. She is the not house going race. house race. Yes. Um, she's not going the Medicare for all route, but she is in support of a public option. She is in support of a Medicare buy-in for people who are 55 and older. So we're seeing people who are even in moderate districts who are presenting themselves as moderates embracing health care in a way that we haven't seen before because it's the number one issue, domestic issue, for a number of people. Um, we're seeing this, you know, the, the Democrats for, definitely have this as their number one issue. Republicans, it's more f along the lines of fourth um, behind other other issues. But this election is all about President Trump and all about health care. And so domestic policy is front and center, and it's really interesting. Anna, well, is this what you were expecting to see? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what's so fascinating about this is the where we are today is sort of the fault of the Republicans who were running, you know, on repeal and replace. Mm -hmm. They didn't get it done, obviously, but they have tried to chip away, as both Alice and Rebecca mentioned. And you know, what happened was people started realizing maybe they like Obamacare or pieces of Obamacare that they didn't want to go away. And I think that that's what has emboldened the Democrats um, and gotten them to this point. And I think that does surprise me that, you know, that, that this is where we came to. I don't think a year ago I, I would have thought that actually this would be something the Democrats could use to their advantage in the end. No, let, I want to, to sort of zoom in a little bit on pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. um, Senate Democrats last week introduced a resolution that would authorize the Senate Legal Council to intervene in the Texas Affordable Care Act case brought by the Republican Attorneys General. For those of you non-regular listeners, that's the case where the Attorneys General argue that the entire Affordable Care Act is now null and void because Congress last year repealed the penalty for people who don't have insurance. Then the Trump administration Justice Department decided it wouldn't defend the law in full, which is normally what the federal government does. But they're also not going to side with the Republican attorneys general that the whole law is uh, should go away. But the Justice Department did say that without the mandate penalties, insurers should no longer have to offer protection to those with pre-existing conditions. That's what set off this current firestorm. Um, Democrats are obviously all over this issue, including Democrats who don't, as Rebecca said, want to talk about Medicare for all. It appears that the one thing every Democrat can talk about is pre-existing conditions. How far can they ride this horse this year? So I think it's really interesting, the political overtones for this, because West Virginia is the state where that is um, most focused on pre-existing conditions. And um, Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator who is running for re-election. Very against, conservative Democrat. Very conservative and running against Patrick Morrissey, former House GOP aide and attorney general. And one of the people who brought the suit. Exactly. And that is that is what we're seeing here, because they brought this up so that the interest groups can run ads saying Patrick Morrissey and Josh Hawley, who's who's the D Missouri want AG, to take away your want coverage. to take away your pre-existing mm -hmm. conditions. Exactly right, Alice. Yeah. Yes, and so and we're seeing those ads now. Um, so it is really interesting. Joe Manchin is all in on pre-existing conditions, as is Claire McCaskill, the M Missouri Democrat, and she's in another tough re-election race. Actually, looking at the list of who's asking to intervene in this lawsuit to fight for the pre-existing conditions protections. It's basically all Democrats who are in tough races. That's right. It's, it's every and yes. all the conservative Democrats. Exactly. It's Claire McCaskill and Heidi Heitkamp yep. of North Dakota. Mansion, and John, yeah. 
and Manchin and John Tester of Montana and, uh, yeah, and Donnelly and, and right and yeah. and and, uh, and Joe Donnelly from mm-hmm. Indiana. It's, it's sort of the, all of these all of these you know more vulnerable. conservative more yeah. conservative but also vulnerable democrats mm-hmm. are are all in on pre-existing conditions right and i mean it makes sense why why it would be a winner even if um this this particular effort is probably likely not to go anywhere with republicans controlling the senate um they wouldn't allow this uh lawsuit intervention against their own party president and but uh it it's you know saying we at least tried to fight for your health care protections and it's a way, it's sort of a tactic to be able to call out the Republicans who have come out and said, we support pre-existing mm-hmm. conditions, you know, or we support, you know, protections mm-hmm. for them. And yet, you know, you see them not actually stepping up, at least to date. And, and I don't expect that they will um, to to bring something like this to the floor. So I think it's a really good kind of talking point that all the Democrats are going to be able to use. Mm-hmm. Well, meanwhile, Republicans are also trying to say they care about health care. The House, just before it left last week for its August recess, passed a pile of bills to delay some of the Affordable Care Act's taxes and expand health savings accounts and who can put what in those tax-preferred vehicles. Uh, we talked about the details of these bills last week, but today I want to talk about what the political impact might be. This is obviously Republicans' way of trying to blunt the Democratic attacks. Um, is it going to work? I don't know, because like we discussed last week, a lot of these are repealing taxes that were never implemented in the first place. And so people's actual day to day experience is not going to change because of these bills. And so, and of course, the, the taxes are mostly on pieces of, right. the, of, the, of their industry taxes. Right, exactly. And so, uh, you know. Maybe industry and industry groups will be happy with Republicans and throw some money at them. Maybe that's the political angle. But I I think that for folks on the ground, um, maybe with the exception of the health savings accounts, although, as we've discussed before, that mainly helps people with higher incomes anyways. It helps people who can who need a tax break and can afford to put away extra money for health care. Exactly. I think, too, the um, the medical device tax, that was something the industry has really been like hounding on. Mm -hmm. And so. I think you um, there are a cluster of medical device companies, large ones in Minnesota, and so you really saw those members from that state behind Democratic this. and Democrat, Republican, yeah, Democratic <laughs> and Republican, and so that I think is something that if you know if maybe that hadn't come up, it could be something that might have the industry come out against them or, or something along those lines. So I guess you know that might have an impact in that way. I think it's worth noting that these votes were all very bipartisan, or at least some, to some degree bipartisan. The medical device uh, tax got 283 votes, including 45 Democrats, and they're two votes away in the Senate from having the votes they need. And as Anna mentioned, these are Democrats in the Senate, for example— it's not moderate Democrats necessarily who are signing up for this. We also have, you know, Richard Blumenthal from Kentucky, from Connecticut. Connecticut. Um, we have the two um, Minnesota senators, and and so and Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts. <laughs> yes, it because there's a on, lot there's, of medical device yes, makers in Massachusetts. In it's a parochial <laughs> issue. Yeah. So, so that that, but 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 my broader question is, I mean, can Republicans is this is this going to be a successful way for Republicans to to fight back against? I mean, it doesn't somehow it doesn't feel like health savings accounts and 
delay further delaying some of the taxes for the ACA are are, are going to blunt that much Democrats charges on pre-existing conditions. I mean, I think what we've learned with the with the big tax bill and the you know, we were told for months that this was going to be the big winning issue for Republicans on the campaign trail and it's completely fizzled and it's not really being discussed at all and it's definitely not um yeah, helping Republicans. I think the lesson from that is if people don't personally feel the benefit from a policy, it's hard to campaign on it. So I think it's also a little bit of apples and oranges. I mean, when you're talking about HSAs, you're talking about helping people that probably already have some sort of health care and have the means to put away that money. Whereas when you're talking about pre-existing conditions, um, Medicare for all, even you're looking at this much broader population and you're helping those who don't have insurance right now. And of course, you're looking to take potentially looking to take something away from them that they already have. Mm hmm. Right. Which, which I guess was the, the the point about some of these taxes that have that have been some of them have been implemented briefly, but but largely they have been Congress has uh, has not been collecting them. And Republicans are in a bit of a bind because if you ask people in polls whether the problems with, for example, the exchange are the Republicans' fault or the Democrats' fault, people are polling and saying that responding to polls and saying that. It is Trump, President Trump's fault. It is, you know, 58% in a Kaiser Family Foundation poll said that they blame the Republicans if there are problems. Only 27% said that they would blame the Democrats. So it's a real dilemma for Republicans and their responses in saying, oh, we're going to expand health savings accounts or we're going to try to give states waivers to lower costs. It seems like at best a partial solution. Well, it's not all good news for the Democrats. They are still divided internally. Um, A couple of weeks ago, uh, House Democrats launched a Medicare for All caucus, perhaps in response to the dozen and a half Democrats who've sponsored a Medicare for All bill in the Senate, way more than in the last Congress. Are Democrats serious about trying to work through how they want to approach something as complex as completely overhauling a fifth of the U.S. economy? Or are these just clever ways for them to say they're for something that's politically popular without actually having to commit to it? I mean, I, I think the fact that we have multiple competing bills on this issue before there's even a chance of a vote is a sign that it's that they're taking it seriously and that they see that this is what a lot of uh, the base is clamoring for. I think it's also what leadership on the Democratic side is looking for to move forward on this issue. I don't you know, we've heard Nancy Pelosi sort of talk about it in terms of waiting and seeing. And so they kind of need to, to put something out there to have actual proposals and, and see how they would work and what they might cost and things like that. Which are which are not insignificant. I mean, those are important mm-hmm. things to do. I mean, it, people don't remember the run up to the Affordable Care Act was two solid years of meetings and negotiations and white papers and informational hearings. And I mean, where you really did bring in everybody and say, what could we do? How could this work? I mean, there's no way you're not just going to pass a Medicare for all bill and say, okay, the government's taking over health care. I would draw a distinction between the House and the Senate. In the House, we've got almost two thirds of the Democrats who are signed on to Medicare for all. In the Senate, it's only one-third of the Democrats who are signed on. And part of that is because of what you just mentioned, the cost. Yesterday, the Mercatus Center put out an analysis. That's a, sort of a conservative think tank. Yes. Put out an analysis um, by Chuck Blayhouse, who is a former Medicare trustee and former Bush administration proposal, saying that it would cost $32 trillion over 10 years. Now, 
It also, that means it would cost $2 trillion less than current expenditures. But that was a little that, buried in the, right, in the study. You had to read down kind of far to, I know, to I, learn that thought, it was actually I, a cost saver. I thought that was sort of the great paradox of single payer, which is that, yes, it will cost an enormous amount of tax money, but overall it's going to cost the, the country less as you know a percentage of the economy, um, which is... Hard and to cover wrap your way more around. people, and tens of millions people. more. Yeah, but that's of course only if it really works, and only if they can really get away with paying basically Medicare rates, and right, which that, is forty percent less than private insurance. Which rates. hospitals say would send many of them under. I mean, this mm-hmm. is this is not something. I mean, it's. I think just for historical context, when they when the Democrats passed the Affordable Care Act in twenty ten, they had sixty votes in the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> and I, a huge majority in the House. And that was as far as they could go with 60 votes in the Senate and a huge majority in the House. I think it's been interesting. So when that uh, cost estimate dropped yesterday, I saw a bunch of um, Republicans immediately send out press releases pointing to it as a sign that Medicare for all is a, a big political loser. And, you know, I was getting press releases saying things like, here are 33 trillion reasons not to vote for Democrats. Um, but yes, again, ignoring that that is less money than doing nothing and keeping our current system would cost. But I think what has to be found out is like how that argument works with the American public. So can can people sort of um, absorb the fact that, yes, that's a lot of money, but it's less than what we would pay now. It's just paid for differently and, and by taxes and by the federal government. And so either either Republicans will get away with just a big figure and being able to talk about that or there will sort of come to an understanding. And I think that's what why Democrats need to get some specifics to their proposal so that it can be talked about in more detail. Although I think my, my question was, can they get away with not having specifics in their <laughs> proposal? I mean, that seems what they're trying to do. Obviously, this is very popular among Democratic voters. Um, the polling that, that's been done mostly, as soon as you start to say, well, this would mean your taxes would go up. I mean, as soon as you add any of the what this would do, support goes way down. But for, right. but for even no- this very conservative study, you know, funded by the Koch brothers, et cetera, a libertarian think tank, the study found that um, overall the decrease in healthcare costs would more than make up for the increase in taxes that people would experience. And so even on the personal level, you you would be saving in addition to the national level. I'm just saying, can they? how, yes. how long can they walk this tightrope of saying that we're for Medicare with, for all without sort of getting into the, the really messy details of what that would actually mean? Well, I think you made an important point that there was this lead up. So it started in, what, 2008? There was a sort of... Two, meet, before that, 2007. 2007. And sort of the, you know, I remember one of the earliest meetings being in the Library of Congress um, that they, that, you know, sort of on o- Obamacare, which wasn't Obamacare um, back then. And I think so they had several years or a few years to sort of talk about it in much broader terms. And we didn't know the specifics and for for a very long time. So I think, you know, if they follow that model, um, obviously, it ended up hurting Democrats once it passed. So it's unclear if that worked. Although, I think, yeah, I, I was saying when it, the, the 2010 campaign, which was really all about health care, was all about the Medicare cuts because nothing else had taken effect. Um, which was odd because, then, of course, the Republicans won. And the first thing they did when they put out their budget was they decided to keep the Medicare cuts. <laughs> I think it's also we need to remember that it's so easy to demagogue on this issue. It's so easy to just say government run health care. And it's it's so important to the different stakeholders, the different industry players to keep their piece of the pie of the health care funding that I think 
there would be a huge battle if we ever were actually serious about trying to move to a Medicare for all system, which right now we're not. <laughs> we're not in a fiscal or political climate that would allow I it. I think that is fair. Finally, there is one tiny note of bipartisanship in all this reinsurance. Federal officials in just the past couple of days approved reinsurance plans for Wisconsin and for Maine. They joined several other states with plans. These are uh, ways to help hold down premiums in the individual market by helping insurance companies pay for their most expensive patients. When you take the most expensive patients out, then they can lower premiums for everybody else. And there was a federal reinsurance proposal earlier this year that was scuttled in the Senate um, and never even got a whiff of a chance in the House. Is there any possibility we could see that come back or is it just health care war between now and the election? I think it would be very hard to pass something through Congress, um, for sure. Although I, I think that we will continue to see, uh, not, especially now that um, a few states have been approved, more states applying for that because it's been proven to really bring down <laughs> premiums. Yes, we, and we are seeing yes. in the filings the states yeah. that have these reinsurance plans mm-hmm. are having much, much smaller increases in the states that don't. I think Maine is projecting a 9% decrease. Minnesota is projecting a 7 to 12% decrease. Wisconsin said they would have a 3.5% decrease. I mean, that's real money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And that I mean, I think the the problem with the federal reinsurance bill wasn't the reinsurance. It was the, the politics of health care. Right. And it, there was never... I, I don't believe a standalone reinsurance reinsurance bill in the Senate. I think it was always paired with those other provisions. No, I think there there was, but it may have had more in it than just there was. There was the cost sharing reduction bill, and then there was the right. The they were trying to pair them together. They were trying to put together. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have 19 legislative days where both <laughs> the House and Senate will be in. So. Wow, that's really all. <laughs> Um, All right. Well, that is the news of the week. It is time for our Bill of the Month interview. This is part of a joint project between KHN and NPR. Every month we investigate and dissect someone's real life medical bills. If you want to send us your bill, there's a link on the KHN website and we will post it on the podcast page this week. So here's my chat with Emery Hudeman, who did the latest Bill of the Month story. Then we will come back and do our extra credits for the week. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast table KHN's Emery Hudeman, who wrote the current Bill of the Month feature. It's about a transgender surgery, a patient who did everything right and still got an unexpected outrageous bill, and a sort of happy ending. Emery, tell us about the patient here and what kind of care she was seeking. This story introduces us to Ren Vettens, who is a PhD student in Wisconsin who was seeking a gender confirmation surgery to address her gender dysphoria. She had been going through hormone therapy, and she had done a lot of research to try and get a surgery called a penile inversion vaginoplasty. And she put a lot of effort into it and ran into some snafus that you wouldn't necessarily have expected, but that a lot of people can relate to. So this is someone who was basically born male but grew up feeling she was female and wanted to have the surgery to confirm that. That's correct. Ren was um, was a little boy who always felt that something was was off, that there was kind of this existential distress and anxiety in her life at all times. Um, and when she became uh, a teenager and when she went off to college, she started thinking a lot about her gender identity and came to the conclusion that she was a woman and that she wanted to pursue the, the hormone therapy and the surgery in order to kind of be herself. And when she chose to to get her graduate studies at the University of Wisconsin, that was something that factored into her decision, right? It was. She really drew a line in the sand when she was looking in the first place about which program she wanted to go into. And she had decided, I'm only going to look at schools that are really friendly 
friendly to transgender women like I am. And University of Wisconsin fit the bill. In addition, it gave her the opportunity to get the insurance that she needed in order to afford this surgery. So she's kind of lucky her mom is a doctor, and she and her mom did pretty much everything right to to try and make this all happen, right? It's true. They had done a lot of research. Her mom, Dr. Kimberly Moreland, had put a lot of research into it as well as an OBGYN. She knew how to navigate the system as well as any doctor does, and she had put a lot of effort over time into advocating for her own patients, and they kind of went at it the same way that she would have for one of her other patients, and did a lot of research, tried to figure out as best they could how much the surgery was going to cost, and discovered that maybe the research was actually wrong. Well, before even the surgery, there were politics involved in this, right, that maybe not involved in other elective surgeries. Yes, politics certainly played in in a way that you don't necessarily see in your average elective surgery. Um, on a state level, Wisconsin was going through some of their own machinations trying to figure out whether or not they were going to offer coverage for this sort of surgery to state employees. And because Wren um, was a graduate student and she was a teaching assistant, she was eligible for state insurance. And at the time, the state insurance board had just decided we're going to comply with an Obama-era uh, rule that says that you cannot discriminate based on gender identity. And this in was a healthcare. piece of the Affordable Care Act. It was, in fact. They had decided in uh, 2016, it was shortly before Wren went off to school, that they were going to, um, that Wisconsin was going to adhere to something that the Obama HHS had just come up with. And what they had done basically was look at this non-discrimination rule in the ACA and say this applies as well when you say sex discrimination to people um, based on gender identity. So Wren is at the University of Wisconsin and Donald Trump is elected. And Donald Trump is elected. And suddenly the winds change. Um, a lot of social conservatives come in under President Trump. He really embraced them. Mike Pence, for example, was really um, pushed back a lot when he was governor of Indiana against LGBT directives from the Obama administration. And um, Trump really embraced that. And you saw that in HHS in particular, where they put kind of a premium on, in particular, they were looking at more kind of religious um, discrimination issues and less so gender identity. And now they're in the process of looking at rolling back some of those gender discrimination issues, including this gender identity rule that was going to help Ren Vettens pay for her transformation. Um, and in the end, Ren gets off to school. She thinks she's got this insurance coverage. And suddenly the insurance board in Wisconsin decides we had thought that we were going to comply with this rule under the Obama administration. And suddenly this rule might not be there anymore. The um, the top state officials in Wisconsin were pushing back against it, calling it unlawful. They actually sued the Obama administration along with some other states on the basis of this rule. Uh, and suddenly there was no more insurance for Ren to use for her for her uh, surgery. So she was but they were going to go ahead anyway. Right. They had they thought they had found a way to pay for it. They did. After after they ran into this roadblock, they said, OK, well, we've we've put a lot of effort into this already. They kept going. They found new insurance. It was the student insurance at University of Wisconsin. And that would cover uh, this surgery as well. And so they started moving forward with this surgery, which had been pre-approved by her new insurance company. Um, and because of their research, they thought they were all set, ready to go. They had the surgery date nailed down. And then suddenly they got a call from the hospital and everything went up in uh, in smoke again. And and but the, but in the end, I mean, she went ahead and had the surgery because she gotten an estimate from the hospital, right, of how much this was going to cost? She did. Um, she had believed that the that the surgery was going to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000 to $30,000. Experts no. will tell you that's generally what the surgery costs. And that's what the hospital told her, right? And her surgeon had told her that that was what it would cost. However, they were referring to the cash prices, which means 
when you don't have insurance, this is what you pay out of pocket for the surgery. The hospital had other ideas. She was only the second person to have this surgery at this hospital. It's a relatively new program there. They had just recruited the surgeon. And they called her up and said, we ran the numbers, and we think it's going to cost about $100,000. The problem for Ren, of course, is that her insurance was capped at $25,000, and so she could be on the hook for as much as $75,000. Kind of bad news when you're already looking at your surgery date, you've already got the preparations well underway, and you thought you were going to be able to afford the surgery. So what ultimately happened here? In the end, um, the hospital offered her and her mother an option to pay their own cash price, which was about $20,000. And they said, uh, you know what? We are a little worried because we recognize that you're going to have to pay a big bill if we go through your insurer. Here's this other option. Pay us $20,000 without your insurance, and uh, we'll call it good. We'll say that's it. And they were really flustered, of course, because they thought this surgery was only going to cost you know, roughly that much anyway, and that they would have the insurance to cover it. So they had to kind of scrape it together, figure out whether they could afford it. And in the end, it was a pretty emotional decision, but they decided to pay the $20,000 out of pocket, have the surgery. Um, the story goes on with more twists and turns from there, including the fact that they thought they were paid in full. And about a month later, they got a bill from the hospital saying that they owed about $13,000 more. It turned out the hospital had accidentally billed their insurance company anyway. Now, many people would look at a bill they get in the mail that, you know, thinking they paid in full, but it says you owe another $13,000 and say, uh, well, you know, I guess if this bill is, is in my mailbox, I should probably pay it. But the truth is that many medical bills contain errors. And in this case, it definitely contained a big one. They knew to push back because, you know, Ren's mom was a doctor. She called the, the hospital and Ren showed her bill to her surgeon and she said, what's going on? What gives? Fortunately, her surgeon went to the hospital and said, this is wrong. Fix it. Fix it for my patient. And they had a happy ending in the end. Through a, more twists and turns, uh, they appealed to their insurance company, and they were able to get reimbursed for a good portion of the $20,000 that they ended up paying the hospital for their procedure. So in the end, they didn't even have to pay the $20,000. They only paid, what, a couple of thousand dollars? Yeah, it was about $2,100 in the end. Obviously, this is an unusual situation, but what can people who are looking at other, you know, elective-type surgeries learn from this situation? It is an unusual situation, but Really, this elective surgery situation is, has a lot of similar problems to other elective surgeries. Some things that you can do if you run into problems like this, don't trust the cash prices when you go researching procedures to try and get an idea for how much your surgery will, will cost. Unfortunately, cash prices are not the same thing as what hospitals will bill insurance companies. They tend to bill higher, of course, because they can make more money off insurance companies that way. However, you could also ask for a cash price if you're okay with your insurance company not really helping you and you're wondering if maybe you can pay a little less. Sometimes hospitals will let you pay less if you pay a cash price. Additionally, you can enlist the help of your surgeon just the same way that Ren did. She ran into this problem, but you know, even though a billing executive is not necessarily going to be very um, sensitive to a patient's responses of complaints of this bill is too high, they do have to keep their surgeons happy. So... If your surgeon is lobbying on your behalf, you might actually have a better chance of getting a reimbursement as Ren did. And lastly, don't just get that bill in the mail and think that I have to pay this. The hospital billed me. You can fight it. You can go back and say, uh, I want more information about why you're charging me this. Or in Ren's case, I thought you said that I was paid in full. Why am I getting a bill? Like I said, there are about, according to some studies, as many as 50% of medical bills have errors, and you're well within your rights to ask before you pay it. Good. Emory Huneman, thank you very much. You're welcome.
Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Rebecca, you want to go first this week? Sure. I I read a really in-depth and very interesting article in The Atlantic. It's about a woman named Kiara who lives in Baltimore, and she has experienced so many difficulties. She's an African-American woman who has diabetes, obesity, sleep apnea, depression. It just goes on and on. And it started, I believe, basically the article suggests that childhood trauma played a part in that. And she ultimately, she got pregnant, the baby died. It's just a terribly sad story. But it speaks to a larger issue about the racial disparities that still exist and how people who live just a few miles from each other can have a 20-year difference in their mortality rates. And it's tied to poverty and ethnicity. And so I thought she did a really good job. It built on stories that Kaiser Health News had done in 2016 and 2017, looking at Baltimore. And I recommend it because this is an issue that really doesn't get enough attention. Alice? I am recommending a great piece in Politico this week by Dan Diamond uh, about the uh, policy research shop in uh, the Department of Health and Human Services that usually uh, is supposed to produce uh, down-the-line research about the policies of the administration or policies they're considering. And uh, yes, it's been somewhat politicized in the past to play up the priorities of the certain administration, but the the politicization uh, Dan has documented within the office now is just off the charts, uh, altering data, burying studies that find things that the administration does not want to highlight. Um, going back through the archives and deleting positive references to the Affordable Care Act, deleting uh, any mentions uh, of LGBTQ health uh, in in their uh, writings. Um, and it's just, yeah, a very interesting piece about what's happening to that particular office and why it matters. It's quite a story. Anna? Mine is a, um, a investigation by Allison Young with USA Today, and it's looking at the maternal mortality rate and you know, we know that it's really high in the U.S. compared to other developed countries. And she was able to figure out and talk to many different hospitals as well as patients. And they're just very simple things that hospitals aren't doing that could save the lives of many, many of these women who go into labor and then die or seriously injured afterwards, you know, just by checking their blood pressure or by weighing sort of the amount of blood that might be coming out of them on pads and things like that, that could make such a huge difference in hospitals in the U.S. aren't following these. There aren't actually any standards that that they have to meet. Um, And so this is a deep dive into what those standards could be, what they should be doing, and what they aren't doing. I think this is the third time we've had a maternal mortality story as an extra credit. They've all been extraordinary, um, and it's, uh, you know, perhaps if enough reporters go after this, the medical community will sit up and take notice. Um, My extra credit this week is a story from the New York Times by Katie Thomas. It's called Meet the Rebate, the New Villain of High Drug Prices. And it's not so much ground that nobody else has plowed, but it's a really, really good explainer on what prescription drug rebates are, how they work, and why they are so controversial, particularly right now. If you have ever been confused about this, this is the story for you. 
And on that note, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Anna Edney. At Alice Olstein. At Rebecca Adams, DC. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.